to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Here's a little bit of background on this podcast before we start. I created this podcast to explore our universe together, to go back in time to learn about ancient history, across the oceans to understand other cultures, to journey through athletics, science, technology, and more. Each episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. So let's dive in to episode three, Bridging the Gap. Social Sciences. Today, we are going to travel to King's College, one of Scotland's oldest colleges, to learn about its history. King's College, founded in 1495, was the first university to be established in Aberdeen, Scotland. The university was founded thanks to the Bishop of Aberdeen, William Elphinstone, who petitioned Pope Alexander VI on behalf of King James IV to create a university to bring higher learning to an area of Scotland that at the time did not have it. Pope Alexander VI issued a papal bull on February 10, 1495, founding the university and a later charter that same year recognized Aberdeen's status as equal to Scotland's other two existing universities, Glasgow and St. Andrew. Bishop Elphinstone has spent part of his early years abroad at the University of Paris, and he modeled King's College after the continental European tradition. Construction of the university's chapel began in 1498, and it was consecrated and dedicated to the Trinity and the Blessed Virgin Mary in her nativity nine years later. On April 2, 1500, King James and representatives from the Freemasons Lodge of Aberdeen witnessed the laying of the foundation stone for King's College. A Latin inscription on the front of King's College describes this day and can be translated as by the grace of the most serene, illustrious, and ever-victorious King James IV. On the fourth before the nuns of April in the year 1500, the Masons began to build this excellent college. Now, the date the foundation stone was placed wasn't chosen randomly. April 2nd is significant as it is traditionally accepted as a date when construction of Solomon's temple began. The chapel was built using sandstone obtained from Moray, Scotland and brought to the location by boat. The most recognizable feature of the chapel is its crown tower, which has become an icon of the university. On top of the chapel is an imperial crown, which one should not mistaken for a royal crown. An imperial crown was used to show support for the Scottish monarch's claims of imperial authority within Scotland, making a political statement that the King of Scots, James IV, had as much authority as the emperor. The original crown disappeared in the storm in 1633 and has since been replaced by a replication. Within the chapel are 52 choir stalls and screens that date back to 1509, making it the most complete medieval church interior in Scotland. The anti-chapel has been used as the university's war memorial since 1928 
and 524 students lost in World War I and World War II are commemorated on its walls. Bishop Effenstone and Hector Boss, who was the first principal of King's College, were buried at the foot of the chancel. Though the bishop's body was found to be missing during later renovations and his ultimate fate remains unknown. Life at the university began the same year that the chapel was dedicated, in 1509. By 1514, the university had 42 members, including both staff and students. After the Scottish Reformation, King's College lost its Roman Catholic staff. In 1593, a rival university, Marshall College, was founded in Aberdeen by George Keith, the 5th Earl Marshall. This college had different outlooks and ethos compared to King's College, but both universities came together to support the Jacobites. After the Jacobites' defeat, both universities were purged of their academics and officials. But on September 15, 1860, King's College and Marshall College would merge into one university, the modern-day University of Aberdeen. Today, visitors can walk through King's College, located within the university's main old Aberdeen campus, and visit buildings that were constructed centuries ago. Cromwell Tower was built in the 1650s, during the period of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and was finished in 1661 after Charles II was reinstated as king. Today, it is used as an observatory, and it still contains lectures and seminar rooms. The King's College Center dates from 1870, when it was initially created as a library. Today, it holds a major conference hall. It even hosted the Scottish Parliament on May 28th through May 30th, 2002, when Her Majesty the Queen addressed Parliament as part of her Golden Jubilee Tour. While walking around campus, visitors can also see a monument of Bishop Elphinstone located outside the college. Henry Wilson, an Englishman, sculpted the monument in Venice between 1912 and 1926. The University of Aberdeen remains highly regarded. It is divided into three separate colleges, the College of Arts and Sciences, the College of Life Sciences and Medicine, and the College of Physical Sciences. There are nearly 600 different degree programs offered and over 100 postgraduate programs. In 2019, the U.S. News & World Reports named it the 228th best global university. It scores highest in its environmental, ecology, and microbiology subject rankings. For those who find themselves in Aberdeen and would like to visit King's College, the Aberdeen website has two self-guided walking tours with additional information about the college. You can find these tours at www.abdn.ac.uk backslash events backslash visits. This link will be made available on my website as well. Sports and Entertainment Let's travel several centuries into the future, from the foundation of King's College in 1495 to the year 1897, the year that the first Boston Marathon was run, the Library of Congress was opened, and the year Amelia Earhart was born. It was also the year that San Diego State University was founded. Currently, in its 123rd year of education and research, 
San Diego State enrolls over 36,000 students and has over 150 undergraduate and postgraduate degree programs. But today, we are here to talk about its former college football stadium, the Aztec Bowl. Costing $500,000 to build, construction of the stadium began 36 years after the university's foundation, and it was the first stadium to be built by a public university in California. Following a dedication ceremony in front of 7,500 people, it would host its first football game on October 3, 1936, against Occidental, one of the oldest liberal art colleges on the West Coast. San Diego State would win that first game 7-0 and go on to become the Southern California Conference champions that same year. Along with being home to the Aztecs football team through 1966, the Aztec Bowl has hosted several other memorable occasions, including the San Diego County Fair, and several notable concerts were also held in the stadium, including the Police, the Grateful Dead, and the Lollapalooza Festival. A U.S. national men's soccer match against Chile in 1988 was played in the stadium as well. But one of the most remarkable occasions occurred on June 6, 1963 when President John F. Kennedy gave the commencement address and accepted an honorary doctorate from San Diego State at the Aztec Bowl. The combination of President John F. Kennedy's appearance, as well as the stadium's Work Progress Administration background, helped to secure its place on the National Register of Historic Places in 1994. Currently, the university's basketball arena, the Viejas Arena, sits on the site of the Aztec Bowl. The bleachers of the Aztec Bowl can still be seen from the arena's parking lot outside. In 2011, a rededication ceremony was held to mark the stadium's 75th anniversary. For the San Diego Tribune, San Diego State President Elliot Hirschman spoke at the event, saying, Many aspects of the university's history were written in the Aztec Bowl. President Kennedy spoke there. I understand the county fair was held there once. Graduations? Concerts? Of course, the football team played there for many years. A bronze plaque commemorating the Work Progress Administration's completion of additional work on the stadium was also reinstalled at the ceremony, having been lost during the construction of the Viejas Arena. For those interested in seeing the remnants of the stadium, you can view them at the Viejas Arena, located at 5500 Canyon Crest Drive in San Diego, California. Science and Technology If you visit the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, you may notice a very unusual skeleton on display. This skeleton has been extremely important to medicine, as it has helped to advance knowledge of a rare disease called Fibroossificans progressiva, or FOP for short. Now, before we talk about what FOP is, let me first take you on a journey through the life of the person the skeleton belonged to, Harry Raymond Eastlack. Mr. Eastlack was born on November 17, 1933, at 10.24 a.m. in the Women's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. He was a healthy baby boy, and the only notable finding on his examination at birth was a minor congenital malformation called congenital bilateral hallux valgus, which means the big toe on each foot was pointed towards his smaller toes instead of lying straight. At the time of his birth, it was not known that this was actually an indicative malformation for FOP. Harry Eastlack's father, 
also named Harry Raymond Eastlack, worked in railroads under engineering management. His mother, Helen Florence Brown, stayed at home with her children as a housewife. He had an older sister, Helene, who would grow up to become a music teacher. Harry initially had a very happy, active childhood, and he enjoyed listening to music on the radio and on records. It wasn't until he was four years old that his parents realized that there was something seriously medically wrong with their son. Harry was playing outside with his older sister when he was hit by a car, fracturing his femur. The hospital put a cast on his leg, but the fracture never set properly. His leg remained painfully swollen and inflamed. As he continued to grow, Harry's hips and knees became more difficult to move. His disease process continued to progress and he suffered flare-ups along his back, neck, and chest. Doctors, unsure at the time on what was causing Harry's symptoms, ordered biopsies and he had 11 surgical procedures to remove excess bone where it should not have been. But instead of these procedures improving his condition, they made things worse. Eventually, he got his diagnosis, FOP. FOP is one of the rarest conditions known to mankind, affecting only 1 in 2 million individuals, with approximately 3,500 people carrying this diagnosis in the world. It is caused by a single nucleotide missense mutation in the ACVR1 ALK2 gene, meaning that one single nucleotide in his DNA was replaced with a different nucleotide, and this caused this devastating disease. FOP causes bone to grow where it should not, essentially creating an extra skeleton which causes an individual to be locked into their body, unable to move, unable to bend. One of the first descriptions of FOP was recorded by John Frake, an English surgeon, in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London. He said, April 14, 1736. There came a boy of healthy look and 14 years of age to ask of us at the hospital what should be done to cure him of many large swellings on his back which began about three years since and have continued to grow as large on many parts as a penny loaf, particularly on the left side. They arise from all the vertebrae of the neck and reach down to the os sacrum. They likewise arise from every rib of his body and joining together in all parts of his back as the ramifications of coral do. They make, as it were, a fixed pair of bodies. Due to his surgeries, his condition progressed at a more rapid rate and Harry became more and more immobilized with newly formed sheets of bone calcifying his limbs. At 15 years old, his jaw fused leaving him unable to eat solid food and having to speak through clenched teeth. His hips, which were one of the first parts to become immobilized, made it difficult for him to sit as bending became impossible. The Hamilton Theater, where he loved to go visit, actually reserved him a seat in the seventh row, which would allow him to stretch his immobile legs. Bones continued to grow, moving along his upper arms onto his sternum, tying his arms to his chest. As bone spread along his back and extended to his skull, his head movement became significantly impaired. Ultimately, Harry was left with movement only in his eyes, lips, and tongue. At just 20 years old, Harry was taken to the Inglis House, a nursing home that was located in Philadelphia, 
and dedicated to low-income, physically disabled individuals. Due to his physical inactivity, Harry ended up developing bronchial pneumonia while staying at the Inglis house. Harry Eastlack would die of pneumonia six days before his 40th birthday. Upon his death, Harry requested his skeleton be donated to the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia to support FOP research. While most skeletons need wire and glue to be displayed in human form, Harry's skeleton with the extra bone growth was fused into one piece. Frederick S. Kaplan, an orthopedic surgeon and the world's leading authority on FOP, described Harry Eastlack's skeleton in his article, The Skeleton in the Closet published in Jean Journal in 2013. He said, Sheets of bone cover Harry's back. Ribbons, sheets, and plates of bone lock his spine to his skull and his skull to his jaw. Additionally, ribbons of bone join the spine to the limbs and immobilize the shoulders, elbows, hips, knees, and jaw. Thin stalagmites of bone launch themselves from his pelvis and thighs. His upper arms are welded to his breastbone by slender white bridges of bone that cross his immobilized ribcage. The extra layers of bone on the outside of his skull are a permanent signature of numerous flare-ups at that site. Philadelphia has become a center for FOP research. Harry Eastlack's skeleton has been significant in advancing research into FOP, and with its help, Frederick Kaplan and his team from UPenn were able to distinguish the gene responsible for FOP, the ACVR1 gene. While this discovery is important in advancing our understanding of FOP, more research still needs to be done to discover a cure for this debilitating disease. For those interested in learning more about this disorder, there's a wonderful documentary called The Girl Whose Muscles Are Turning to Bone, which focuses on a seven-year-old girl named Luciana Wolken in her battle with FOP. My upcoming episode of Trivial Knowledge Special Edition on Rare Diseases, Episode 2, will also be featuring FOP. Geography and World Culture Have you ever wondered how countries obtained their coat of arms? Well, today we are going to learn the history of Bulgaria's coat of arms. Bulgaria, officially known as the Republic of Bulgaria, is located in Southeast Europe and has a long and interesting history. Their current coat of arms was adopted on July 31, 1997 and consists of a golden lion rampant over a dark red shield. Two crowned golden lions support the shield and below the shield are oak twigs and white bands. On top of the shield sits the Bulgarian historical crown from the Second Bulgarian Empire, which reigned from 1185 to 1396. The country's motto, Unity Makes Strength, is inscribed on the white bands that sit below the shield. For those who are more visual, you can visit my website www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com to see a picture of the coat of arms. Prior to the adoption of the current coat of arms, the previous emblem was abandoned in 1989 as it had the coat of arms of the Soviet Union included. The lion first established itself in the history of Bulgaria when it appeared in Lord Marsh's role composed around 1294 AD. Even under rule of the Ottoman Empire, the lion remained a heraldic symbol of its rulers and of Bulgaria itself. During the National Awakening of Bulgaria, the lion was influential among intellectuals and revolutionaries, 
many of which used the version created by famous painter Christopher Zafirovich, seen in his book Stematographia, which was a single golden lion on a dark red shield. After the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878, the coat of arms of Zafirovich was adopted. Bulgaria's coat of arms took many different forms over the next several decades, with the lion always taking center stage. In 1927, the middle form of the coat of arms was adopted, which was similar to that used by Bulgarian monarchs Ferdinand I and his son, Tsar Boris III, though all dynastic elements were excluded. In the communist era, an emblem with a golden lion over an azure field replaced the traditional type of coat of arms. It wasn't until 1991 that the traditional middle coat of arms in 1927 was restored, though with some minor changes. There was controversy throughout the government in establishing the design of the current coat of arms, with different parties arguing over the design elements. The Monarchist Union of National Salvation wanted the royal arms that was used in 1947, while the socialists favored an uncrowned lion. The current coat of arms was legitimized in the law for the coat of arms of the Republic of Bulgaria in 1997. Article 2 of the law, translated to English, states, the coat of arms of the Republic of Bulgaria shall be a rampant golden crown lion on a dark red field in the form of a shield. Above the shield, there is a big crown, which originally are the crowns of Bulgarian kings of the second Bulgarian state, with five crosses and another cross over the crown. The shield is supported by two golden crown rampart lions turned towards the shield from the right and left heraldic side. They stand above two cross oak branches with fruits. Below the shield, over a white band put over the oak branch with a three-color edge, is written with golden letters, Unity Renders Power. The first article in the law states that the coat of arms of the Republic of Bulgaria expresses the independence and sovereignty of the Bulgarian people and state. And the third article discusses the rules of its use. If you would like to learn more about coat of arms in general, I have posted a blog on the topic on my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. Today's random topic. Today, our random Wikipedia page brings us to a topic that you probably never thought you would learn about unless you were interested in dentistry, that is. Today, we end this podcast with the Rochette Bridge. You may be wondering what a Rochette Bridge is, and that is what I am here to tell you all about. But first, let me define what bridge means in dentistry terminology. A bridge is a type of dental prosthesis and is used to bridge the gap created by missing teeth. It is typically made of two or more crowns to be placed on teeth on either side of the gap and the bridge contains false teeth to replace the missing teeth. The Rochette Bridge is such a type of dental prosthesis and was popular in dentistry in the 1970s. The bridge was named after its creator, Alan Rochette, a French physician and dentist who developed the bridge in 1973. It was bound to the teeth using an acid edge technique, but the wings of the bridge were also perforated with holes. Bonding material was forced through the perforations, forming tags, which allowed the bridge to remain on the teeth. The idea of bonding metal to the enamel of teeth with an adhesive resin was new at the time, and the Rochette Bridge was the first resin-retained bridge. 
It was typically used to split anterior teeth with a bar bonded to the tongue surface of the teeth. The big advantage of this type of bridge is that it can be easily removed by removing the composite material from the holes. Today, it has been superseded by the Maryland Bridge, but it is still in use in restorative dentistry as a temporary bridge due to its easy removal. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to read the blog post discussing coat of arms, would like links to more in-depth articles on topics you enjoyed, or would like a sneak peek about next week's episode, please visit my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we discover how the song A Hard Day's Night got its name and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Bertrand Russell. There is much pleasure to be gained from useless knowledge. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.